Hello and welcome to Psych OG. This is a psychology podcast here to coach you through your Cambridge International Psychology 9990 AS exams. We are here to bring you all that you need to know for the 12 key studies. I'm Jo and I'm here in New Zealand and we also have... Hi, I'm Leanne and I'm based in China. And I'm Carl and I'm in Nepal. So today we are having a look at the button phobia study, which is written by Saavedra, Saavedra? And Saavedra. <laughs> I like to call it SNS personally. I know there's another one, Chapter and Singer. It's also SNS, but I can pronounce mm. those names. <laughs> so the SNS study, and it looks at one boy and his fear and disgust for buttons of all types, but particularly the smaller buttons. Spoiler alert, at the end of the study, he no longer fears buttons, but the curing of his phobia is not the most simple process, as we shall soon see. If we look at the psychology being investigated or the psychological concepts that are involved is very much based on a type of learning called classical conditioning. I think we've mentioned it before in one of the other podcasts. I think we were talking about operant conditioning. We mentioned classical conditioning briefly. And um, classical conditioning is actually based on the work of a Russian psychologist called Ivan Pavlov. And Ivan Pavlov was originally a biologist that was interested in the salivation responses of dogs. In other words, when dogs were presented with food, they would start to feel hungry and their mouths would start to water. So they would start to produce saliva in readiness for receiving food. Uh, Not the most ethically sound animal studies. Um, most people would agree with. He actually implanted tubes into the jaws of the dogs to actually objectively measure the amount of saliva that they produced in response to being presented with food. So normally dogs, if you present them with food, the same with humans as well, if you present them with food, they start to produce saliva in readiness for eating. Now, the thing is, this presentation of Food is called, well, it's a stimulus. I'm sure you've heard of stimulus and response. Stimulus is something we see or perceive in our environment. And the response is how we react to that stimulus. So in the case of a dog salivating, the food would be the stimulus and the response would be producing saliva. Now, we call this food a unconditioned stimulus because nothing's been learnt about other things around the presentation of food. And we call the salivation, the production of saliva, an unconditioned response, because it's not being learnt, or we presume it's not being learnt. So what happened with Pavlov is he would, okay, first of all, you present the food, and the dog produces an unconditioned response of salivation. Then you present the dog the food, and what's called a neutral stimulus first, which is the sound of a bell, and then the dog produces the response, which is the unconditioned response of salivation or mouthwatering. And then once this has been done a few times, the dog then starts to respond just to the sound of the bell. It becomes what's called a conditioned stimulus that produces a conditioned response. So there's this learning that the bell, it's kind of a predictor that you're going to get some food. So you can see this, if any of you have got pets of your own, you can see that your dog 
will get excited when you give it some food or it might hear you rustle the bag or go to the part of the kitchen where the dog food is and then the dog will respond. So it's learnt that certain stimuli predict that food will appear. So this has been studied as a method of learning phobias as well. And there was a quite an unethical study on a boy called Little Albert by a psychologist called Watson, who looked at conditioning or teaching, conditioning really, but creating, making this little boy, Little Albert, learn a different response to a rat. So at first, Little Albert would see a rat and he wouldn't respond in any way. He didn't mind rats. He didn't have a fear for rats. But he did have a fear for noise. So what Watson did was present Little Albert with a rat and then make a loud noise. And then later, when Little Albert was presented just with a rat, he would show a fear response. So he developed a conditioned stimulus of the rat, which was originally a neutral stimulus. The neutral stimulus after learning becomes a conditioned stimulus. And that produced a conditioned response or a learned response to the appearance of the rat, which was a fear response. Now, this is considered a model of how phobias are learned. You can imagine some of the phobias maybe that you have and how they might have developed from the presentation of something. And then you became fearful of it. And then you develop this link between the stimulus and the response. That's the basics of classical conditioning and how it's been applied to explaining phobias. But it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. What psychologists actually think is that there are actually two types of learning that are going on here. The first one is called expectancy learning, and the second is called evaluative learning. And the names of them kind of are a bit of a clue to what they mean. So expectancy learning, the word expectancy, it's about what your expectations are once you see a particular stimulus. And evaluative learning is about the values that you assign to that stimulus. Okay, so is it a good stimulus? Is it a bad stimulus? Is it a disgusting stimulus? Is it, is it a lovely stimulus? So, you know, we can actually have both positive and negative feelings about a stimulus. And we can also have positive and negative expectations of what might come after we see a stimulus as well. So in expectancy learning, I'll give an example that's actually on the internet somewhere. And that's of somebody seeing a ladder up against a building. And they think, oh, a ladder. Okay, let's see what's at the top of this ladder. They start to climb the ladder and the ladder slips and they fall off and they hurt themselves. And what happens then is that they learn to expect pain after a ladder, okay? So you've got this, in terms of classical conditioning terminology, you've got a conditioned stimulus now that you've learned, which is the ladder, and a conditioned response, which is this fear of the ladder, of what's gonna happen when you use the ladder. So that's about your expectation of what's gonna come afterwards. Now, with evaluative learning, what happens is that you might also learn that ladders are horrible things without any expectation of what comes afterwards. 
So that's the difference between expectancy learning and evaluative learning. I'll give you another example that's a bit more of a positive example, because, of course, classical conditioning and these types of learning can also lead to positive outcomes, happy outcomes like it does with the dog, seeing the food, oh, I'm getting food. So let's imagine if your parent is happy, then you become happy. So your parents are happy, then you're happy. You have a response to seeing them happy. Now, imagine that you get a high grade in your psychology mocks and your parent is happy. Then you have this happiness response. So you might expect that if you get a high grade in psychology, your parents are going to be happy. So that's expectancy learning and then you become happy. And then the other thing that you might do is you might just become happy intrinsically to seeing a high grade. So you develop this oh, high grades in my psychology are really good. I, oh, I love that. That's brilliant. Oh, look, I got a high grade, everybody. You show them your paper. You're really happy. And it's got nothing to do with your parents being happy or the expectation that your parent will be happy. So there's two possible directions that evaluative learning can go in. You could evaluate something as being horrible or negative or disgusting. Or you could actually see it as like, oh, that's lovely. Oh, it's really lovely, that that stimulus. And also it can lead to an expectation of something later. All right. So moving on and looking at the aims of this study. So really we're looking at it in two parts. And the first is thinking about the cause of the phobia. Okay, we traditionally think about phobias as connected to fear. But what these psychologists wanted to think about is, is it this negative evaluation of disgust rather than fear that perhaps is a primary cause. And then secondary to that, the aim is to look at can they treat a phobia by addressing both fear and disgust and thinking about if we target the fear and the disgust for treatment, are we going to have a stronger impact? Are we going to be able to cure this phobia? One other thing I'll add in with the aim is that this kind of study, this research into evaluative learning and phobias had been done a little bit with adults. But this would be one of the first times or perhaps even the first time when they were looking at it in children. So they particularly wanted to bring it into the forefront of literature for children as well. OK, now following on for Joe's point about this being a study investigating children, this is a case study. So as you would expect, this is a very small sample. In this case, one child, OK, a nine year old Hispanic boy. Now, the first question my students quite often have being from China is Hispanic. What on earth does that mean? So just for a little bit of background information, Hispanic generally refers to a Spanish-speaking person living in America and normally referring to someone either from or having a family history from some of the Latin American countries like Mexico, Argentina. So there we go, just a bit, a little bit of background there about the sample. How they came upon him, though, is that he presented with his mum to the Child Anxiety and Phobia Programme at Florida International University in Miami. So they presented themselves going, hey, this is a problem. Please help us. And through that, they were able to help him. But before we get onto the how they decided that he truly had a phobia, because particularly if any of you go into A2 and if one of your themes that you look at is abnormality, you'll understand a bit more about this when it comes to abnormality is that we have this beautiful book called the DSM-4 that, or DSM-5 as it is right now, that they use to help diagnose all sorts of mental illnesses, including phobias. 
But before we go down that track, let's talk about how we became phobic and the story that they brought to the phobia place to say, this is what happened. This is what happened as a result. When the boy was five years old, he was in kindergarten. So I think like year one at school, more or less, or year zero. And he was doing an art project that involved buttons. As you do when you're in kindergarten, you do various art projects. Sometimes it's with pasta, sometimes it's with paint. This time it was with buttons. And he described a situation in which he ran out of buttons to paste on his poster board. And he was asked to come to the front of the class to retrieve more buttons from a large bowl on the teacher's desk. When he reached for the bowl, his hand slipped and all of the buttons in the bowl fell on him. Which just would have been a bit of a weird feeling, I think. However, he described the experience as rather distressful, and since then, both the boy and his mother reported that his avoidance of buttons continually increased. It led to interference for the boy and his family. Um, he wasn't able to dress himself, and the difficulties of concentrating in school due to an excessive preoccupation with not touching his school uniform or anything that his button shirt was touching. So that would even be like his jersey or his... Um, anything else touching his button shirt he just didn't want to touch it and because he was so focused on that he was finding his schoolwork difficult outside of school he avoided wearing any clothing containing buttons so like stretchy waist pants as opposed to jeans I guess and avoided contact with buttons that others wore as well so including his mother including friends or other family members he just if they were wearing buttons didn't want anything to do with that so that is how he became phobic in terms of diagnosis of the phobia, it was based on child and parent interview data. So they did interview the child himself, and they also interviewed his mother as well. And to do this, they used what is called the ADISCP, which is the Anxiety Disorders Interview Schedule for the DSM-IV or DSM-4 child and parent versions. And through that, they discovered that he met the DSM-4 criteria for a specific phobia of buttons. I just wanted to highlight there that phobias are actually part of a bigger group of disorders, of mental disorders, which are the anxiety disorders. And that's kind of important for understanding because you'll hear the term anxiety disorder used a lot. And phobias are one type of disorder within this group of disorders. There's other things like what's called GAD, generalized anxiety disorder as well, which is not specific like a phobia. So I thought it's worth highlighting that for all the listeners too. Absolutely. So you can have specific phobias and many different things from probably general specific phobias that you might be more familiar with, like heights or spiders. I really don't like cockroaches. I don't know if it would necessarily reach the um, level of an actual specific phobia, but different people can have different phobias to different things. And in this case, had a specific phobia of buttons. In addition, they also ruled out possible adverse events in the child's life, like physical or sexual abuse, to be a trigger of this phobia of buttons, or accidents or any other significant trauma. So through those interviews, they would have um, ruled out these different things. Also, the authors identified that they did check to see if he met the criteria for a DSM-4 diagnosis of OCD, or Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. But they decided that he didn't meet that criteria because his symptoms did not include recurrent and persistent thoughts, impulses or images that may be intrusive, all of which are very necessary for an OCD diagnosis. What they found was that the marked and persistent avoidance of those buttons was cued by the presence and anticipation of the buttons as observed in a specific phobia rather than OCD in general. 
as Leanne mentioned earlier, the type of study is a case study. And this study only deals with the one participant. And so therefore it is. Additionally, I would say that it would be rare for a study that looks into button phobia to be anything but a case study because it is so rare. It is not a very common phobia. I do believe that people have said that Steve Jobs also had this button phobia. He's the founder of Apple, and that was potentially one of the reasons why he created the Apple iPhone, because um, the original phone had like one on-off button and then the other one button in the middle of it. So he tried to get rid of as many buttons as possible by having a touchscreen phone, which I think is fantastic. So sometimes your fears can drive you to make amazing things. One final thing that I'll share before I pass off to somebody else is our experimental design. It seems a bit weird to talk about it in a case study, but when there's one participant, it becomes a little bit more obvious that it would be repeated measures because he would be interacting with all levels of the IV. Talking of IV, uh, let's have a little discussion about the variables that are involved. Because when we talk about an independent variable and independent variable, we're talking about using the experimental research method. Now here, because we're using a case study, we don't necessarily have an independent variable and a dependent variable but we do have some variables that we need to look at. So one of the variables is the number of buttons that the boy manipulated. Another variable that we need to consider is what was called the severity rating, how severe the feelings were that this boy had towards buttons of different types. Now, as Joe mentioned, you know, she said about Steve Jobs having a phobia of buttons. Well, the thing is, the buttons that the boy had a phobia of were actually clothing buttons. There was no suggestion that he had a phobia of buttons on machinery. So a quite different type of button. And of course, if you have a look around your classroom or around your friends or on your clothing at the type of buttons that you have, I can see Joe just checking the buttons now. I've got a pair of jeans on with like a little metal button there. Joe, what type of buttons do you have? Have you got any buttons there? Well, it's summer here in New Zealand at the moment, and actually I'm not wearing any buttons. Maybe you're not aware and you're being averse to the buttons when you choose your wardrobe today. Uh, Leanne, have you got any buttons on today? Well, it's winter in China, so I'm tucked up in my jeans. So like you, I've got the jeans button, but I'm also wearing my nice comfy slippers that have some very decorative wooden buttons on them. So oh, well, excellent. I okay. think the boy would be avoiding me today. Right. And if you think about some schools, when children go to school, they might have like a pressed white shirt with little clear buttons to button up the front of the shirt. That's one type of button or like Leanne said, you know, these larger decorative buttons. And one of the things that the uh, researchers use to assess the severity of the boy's phobia was a scale with different types of buttons on it. And this scale is actually shown in a visual form, a bit like a thermometer. So you can think about, you know, with a thermometer, the rating of the thermometer is lower, the colder it is. And as it heats up, it goes up the thermometer towards the top. So if you can think about the boy's fear, if he rated it at the bottom, then he would have less fear. And then as he rated it higher, he would have more fear. Now, I'll just give you some examples of the things that were actually on this feelings thermometer. So distress ratings that were at the lower end were things like large denim jean buttons, 
Then the next level up were small denim jean buttons, then clip-on denim jean buttons, then large plastic coloured buttons, large plastic clear buttons. And then also on here were things like hugging his mum when she wears large plastic buttons. That was considered worse for him than actually just large plastic buttons, probably because he was getting closer to those buttons. Then medium coloured plastic buttons, then medium clear buttons. Hugging mum when she wears regular medium plastic buttons. And then the things that caused the most distress were small plastic buttons that were coloured and then small plastic buttons that were clear. So the distress rating went up from actually at the bottom of the thermometer had a distress rating of zero and large denning buttons were given a value of two. Zero would have probably been no buttons and no distress. And then eight was the small plastic buttons that were clear. Well, actually, probably the most difficult thing for the boy because that tended to be the things that he might wear for school, a shirt with clear plastic buttons down the front. So that would have been quite difficult for him. Just to recap, we've got a couple of variables. We've got the number of buttons that the boy manipulates or can hold in his therapy sessions. That's one variable. We've got the severity rating of the phobia, which is measured using this hierarchy of fear and disgust, which is measured using this feelings thermometer. That's how they went about measuring these things. How many points are there on the feelings thermometer? What's the rating scale? Uh, Zero to eight. Which is how many points? Well, that would be nine points, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, if you look in the paper, the rating of one, there is no example of what that was. Usually when you've got these thermometers, you've got zero, then no presence of buttons, no thinking about buttons, and then one might be thinking about a certain type of button or thinking about buttons generally, which triggers some sort of response. Then two would be real buttons. They actually use these scales in a thing called systematic desensitization, which is a way of systematically overcoming fear responses to things like with spiders and things like that. But you'll go on to learn more about that probably in A-level. Now, the other thing that we want to mention is the length of the therapy sessions. So the whole point of this was to actually help him overcome his phobia of buttons. What happened was the boy would have a treatment session that lasted 30 minutes on their own with the therapist. And they would also have therapy sessions with the boy and the boy's mother, and they lasted for 20 minutes. So the longer therapy session was with the boy alone, and the shorter session, 10 minutes shorter, was with the boy and his mother. Very good. So now that we've had a bit of an introduction to how long the therapy sessions were, let's dive into our therapy one which has been highlighted in the original article and has been named behavioral exposures. I also think of them in the Latin phrase in vivo, which means like in real life. So these behavioral exposures, we're dealing with buttons in real life. This was an exposure-based treatment. So it's the holding and touching buttons that involve both cognitive and behavioral procedures. The mother was there for those 20-minute sessions towards the end of the treatment thing. So the 30 minutes was just the boy, and then the mum came in. And what she was used for was to provide positive reinforcement, which was contingent or based upon the child's successful completion of each of the gradual exposures to the buttons. So as he was holding more buttons or as he was 
dealing with instead of uh, just the large denim buttons, which were on lower on the feeling thermometer, and then moving up into some large plastic buttons. Then as he was moving through these different things, then his mother would give him positive reinforcement. We aren't told what that positive reinforcement was. Maybe it was just words. Maybe it was things that he liked, like Lego or something. I don't know. We don't know. But we do know is that he was encouraged to continue and do that. The order of the exposures were based on his subjective ratings of distress on the feeling thermometer. So they worked from the bottom of the feeling thermometer with the easiest and least distressful things, all the way to the top of the feeling thermometer, which were the hardest and the most distressful. For those of you that are interested in language, and uh, maybe those of you that may be Hispanic, the word contingent actually comes from two words in Latin, con meaning together, and the tingent bit comes from, I hope I pronounce it right, tangera, which means to touch. So it's together with touching something, which is kind of nice. So you can imagine things together and touching each other. That's where the meaning comes from. Maybe that'll help some of you. Thank you, Carl. We're looking at treating this phobia. So let's see how effective this exposure was to treating the phobia. So the first thing to say is the boy actually experienced only four sessions of this particular treatment. And by the end of those four sessions, SNS report that he'd completed all tasks. And at first sight, when we look at the graph initially, it seems like it was pretty successful. Because actually, by the end of the session, he could handle many more buttons than he could at the beginning. So in session one, he was only able to handle and manipulate five buttons. By session three, we're up around 25. And by session four, we are up to about 30 buttons. So really looks very successful. He started not being able to manipulate these buttons. And by the end, he was confident doing so. However, what we also need to look at are his distress ratings. And what we might expect based on our sort of understanding of phobia treatment is his distress ratings would go down. But what we actually see is his perceived stress ratings actually increase. So as he's handling more and more buttons, his distress rating is going up. So initially, his distress rating in session one was at a six. But by session four, this has increased up to eight with a particularly big increase between session two and session three. Okay, so although his behavior is progressing, his actual level of distress was increasing. And in fact, some of his distress levels were higher than they were before he actually completed the therapy. So for example, hugging his mother when she was wearing plastic buttons, he now rated higher and the same as being exposed to medium colored buttons was actually higher than prior to the treatment. And how the psychologists interpreted this was they confirmed it was a confirmation of their theory about evaluative learning, as the behaviour had changed, but the evaluative reactions had not. Furthermore, with the researchers, they looked at this data and went, oh, there's something up here. So they started to talk to the boy a bit more about this. And so they reported that further probing or discussion revealed that the boy found buttons to be disgusting upon contact with his body. He really didn't like the buttons touching him. He also expressed that buttons emitted unpleasant odors. So he seemed to suggest that buttons just smelled gross. They smelled disgusting. They smelled like something he did not want around him. They also noted that the boy indicated that buttons were disgusting and gross, as mentioned before, even with intense probing, so lots of questions, 
it was actually really difficult for the boy to describe exactly what about the buttons made them disgusting and gross. He just knew that they were gross. He knew that they smelled weird and he didn't want them anywhere to do with him. So he really just did not enjoy these buttons, which then leads us into our second round of therapy. And this second round of therapy is referred to in the paper as disgust imagery and cognitions. So this was seven sessions based around this idea of imagery exposures and cognitions. Now, what that was, was trying to explore with the boy what he found so disgusting about buttons. And the study doesn't really specify any more detail than that in terms of what the boy said about finding them disgusting. But what the therapy involved was asking the boy to imagine various scenarios. So whereas our previous therapy was actually physically handling buttons, this task was purely imagining. So for example, he was asked to imagine buttons falling on him and then ask about how do they look? How does it feel? What do they smell like? And then asking him to elaborate on how that made him feel. And that progressed again through his feelings monitor, through the larger buttons that he felt slightly more confident with, through to the smaller buttons where he had that higher level of fear. And what they used within that were sort of two techniques, one self-control and one called cognitive restructuring. Now, self-control is, if you like, a therapy method that uses the idea of self-talk, getting the individuals to recognise the difficult situations they face and the negative thoughts they have about it and then challenging them to think of alternative thoughts and perhaps think about it in a more positive way and that leads into a more formal aspect called cognitive restructuring which is a core concept of a type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy which is very commonly used to treat phobias and other anxiety disorders so again it's used for participants or patients to confront negative thought patterns so this idea that buttons are gross buttons are disgusting and perhaps recognizing that the thoughts themselves are not a helpful behavior okay and the idea is to try and replace that negative thinking with more positive and that's broken down really into three steps identify the thought then challenge or dispute that thought so try and sort of question it make people delve a bit more into how true is that thought or belief is it a realistic aspect? And then the last step is to then replace that thought with something a little bit more positive with the hope that by changing the thought, you can then change the behavior. How did it work? Did it work? Reported in the study, it appeared to be successful in reducing the boy's subjective ratings of distress. And then they give two different examples of two different imaginations and showing how they change in terms of their severity rating or their distress rating from before to midway through the sessions and then after as well. So they did ratings. It's not across three sessions per se, it's before, midway through the therapy sessions and then after. So the first one is um, imagining hundreds of buttons falling on his body before he rated this as an eight. So the highest, the most severe thing. Midway through, it came down to a five. And then after the treatment sessions, he rated that as a three. And I assume that rating it as a three was considered to be a win in this regard. Similarly, for a second imagination, which is imagining hugging his mother with, quote unquote, a shirt full of buttons. And it makes me think of those people back in London with all like the pearly buttons all over their uh, shirts. If you've ever seen this, you'll know what I mean. 
known as the pearly kings and queens of london if you google pearly kings or pearly queens you'll find the pictures yes so i imagine that he's hugging his mother with one of those shirts on and before the therapy he rated this as a seven so not quite the highest severity but pretty darn high midway through came down to a four and afterwards was rated as a three, which again, I think they must consider that three is okay and that is a sufficient rating to end on. Can I just ask a question? Because I've looked and I can't find it in here. How far apart were each of those sessions? We talk about post-treatment, we talk six and 12 months, but it doesn't say how long that treatment was for and what the gap was in between each session, does it? No, I don't believe it does. You know, whether it was a week or they were one after the other or anything, it's just not there. They do say that there's seven sessions of the discussed imagery and cognitions, but we've got no idea if those sessions were a week apart or, you know, two days apart. Or even all on the same day or anything. It doesn't really say. Okay, so um, we've got the, the therapy, the treatment sessions, and then we've got what we can call post treatment and six and 12 month follow-up assessment sessions. It does say that post-treatment, six months after the treatment and 12 months after the treatment, that they looked at how the boy responded and how well the boy was doing. So at the post-treatment assessment session, the boy reported minimal distress about buttons. So he certainly seemed to feel better about buttons. And he no longer met the criteria in the DSM-4, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that's used for assessing whether somebody's got a phobia. He no longer met the DSM-4 criteria for specific phobia of buttons. So he no longer had the phobia. He was also now wearing clear plastic buttons on his school uniform on the shirt that he wore. If you think about it, that was the most distressing type of buttons before the therapy happened. And he would wear this on a daily basis to school as well. At the six months and the 12 months follow-up period to see if this treatment's changes had been sustained, because sometimes what happens with therapy is you do the therapy straight after you feel a lot better, everything's okay, but then slowly a phobia creeps back into your life and you can't handle the spiders or the heights. I I know once I was treated for um, height phobia, And afterwards, I actually, I was fine with it. But then a little while after, I started to feel more fearful of heights. But with this boy, at the six-month and the 12-month follow-up period, thankfully, he reported very, very little distress about buttons. And they say that he was in remission for dsm 4 specific phobia diagnosis. So remission means that he didn't have any of the symptoms of phobia. He didn't have the phobia anymore. He continued to wear clear plastic buttons every day when he went to school on his school uniform shirt. So it certainly looks like he was still clear of the fear of buttons and was okay. Okay, so this is a very short study, which is wonderful. And so now we are on to our final conclusions. And these are more conclusions that the authors came up with following their own research. So I have three ones that I can bring forward. Firstly, that disgust imagery and cognition, so our second therapy, can be successful in diminishing a specific phobia of buttons. So we're linking it particularly to this because we're not sure from this study whether we can conclude that this would be relevant for any other specific phobias, but definitely for buttons. 
Evaluative learning also, number two, can be a part of developing phobias and also in curing them. So they felt that the evaluative learning was a part of the development of uh, the boy's phobia. And therefore, since he was more cured through the disgust imagery and cognitions based on the evaluative learning, that also helped to cure him. And finally, that imagery exposure, this imagery and cognitions can have a long-term effect, or at least up to 12 months, on reducing the distress associated with specific phobias as they tackle the negative evaluations. Those are the three conclusions that I have that can be drawn from this study. Remember, we're thinking conclusions in the present tense, present and future. And when we come to results, we think of them in the past tense. One issue that's particular to this study, it's a very specific, this one, it's actually within the syllabus and it's the use of children in psychological research because there are some specific issues with using children in psychological research. First of all, with this, the long-term aim was to treat the child of his phobia, but of course, going through this therapy actually would have placed the child in some distressing situation. So there are issues here of actually distressing the child, and we know from the ethical issues that you have to consider with any human research that, you know, emotional and physical pain and, and making sure you minimize that is very important. With children, it's particularly important to consider that emotional pain as well, because they may react very differently to the research conditions compared to an adult. Children quite often can have less maturity in their emotional control and actually become more distressed. So that's something that you have to consider here. The other thing that you have to consider is that we talk about things like informed consent and right to withdraw and these kind of things when we talk about using humans in research. And when we look at children, it's particularly important because children don't know their rights or they might not understand when they're explained to what their rights are or they might not understand and be able to give informed consent or might not be able, once they get distressed, they might not be able to say, I don't want to continue with this. So there's a balance to be had in this study between the distress the child goes through and the long-term goal of the treatment. So that's the ethical issues of using children in psychological research. But there are also some other issues of using children in psychological research to do with methodological issues. One of the methods that was used with it, we talk about this being a case study, but there's also another research method that's embodied within this case study, and that's self-reporting. The boy was asked how he felt on the scale, on the feelings thermometer about the buttons. So there is some self-reporting. Remember, questionnaires and interviews are types of self-reporting methods. Now, self-reporting itself certainly has issues of validity. Are we actually getting a true measure of the thing that we're looking at? And also problems of reliability. Are we getting a reliable reporting by the individual? Is the boy going to look at that scale and report the same way every time? So there might be a lack of reliability and validity in using self-reporting, particularly in the case of a child. And also, 
in terms of questioning the boy, that's another type of self-reporting that might be affected by these things. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end as well, I think. Another thought I have is because we've got the boy and sometimes the boy and his mother there, I'm sure he's quite aware of the purpose of the whole deal is to get better at this whole button thing. So there's potentially a little bit of demand characteristics in that over time he does get better. There's a little bit to say that, particularly in the first therapy, that perhaps he's not responding to those demand characteristics because he is feeling more distressed, even though he's holding more buttons. So he's doing what they're asking him to do, but he's still like, this is so horrible. Because if he was really leaning in on those demand characteristics, then perhaps his distress levels would have gone down as he was holding more buttons as well. But you can't necessarily say that's not the case for the imagery that maybe over time he's like, oh, whatever, I'm so over this. I want to stop seeing this person. I'll just say, oh, it's five now to three, whatever. We don't know. I mean, he's nine years old, not quite teenage yet, but he's getting that direction. So that is another thing to perhaps consider when it comes to children. Yeah, certainly. And we're going to talk about validity a little bit later, and I'll talk about a couple of other issues that relate to issues to using children in research when we talk about that as well. Okay, so as well as use of children, another issue and debate that's specifically mentioned in your AS syllabus is that of nature nurture, which we've come across before in previous podcasts, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining it in detail, but just think about nature as things were born with perhaps genetically or biologically that cause our behaviour or influence our behaviour as opposed to the nurture, which is more about the environment and how that influences us. Now, in this case, we're talking about phobias and phobias are seen very much as connected to the nurture site. They are something we learn. Now, one thing you need to be careful of is distinguishing between a phobia and a fear. And fears can be argued to have a kind of biological component. So for example, if you think back to Chapter and Singer, our reactions, if we see a curled up shape on the ground, we have an instinctive fear reaction and jump away from it in case it's a snake. Uh, we might later look at it and it's a, just a funny shaped twig or a bit of hose pipe or an old rope. But the instinctive reaction is perhaps something that could have been passed down in an evolutionary manner to help protect us. That is not the same as a phobia, which is a very specific learned fear, learned through a form of conditioning. So, for example, there's nothing in our history that suggests buttons falling on you is going to be a threat to our physical health. So in this case, the phobia is something learned through his experience in the classroom of the buttons falling on him. So it's very much connected to the nurture side of that debate. I do want to add one tiny little thing to this nurture stuff here, just to emphasise how the results support um, the nurture argument. Firstly, that it seemed that he was nurtured into the fear through the experience to um, have his dislike and disgust of buttons but then he was also nurtured out of it, A, through being able to handle more buttons. So he still hated them, he still found them disgusting, but he was able to handle more buttons through the nurturing, through the behavioural stuff. And then B, to then be able to deal with that disgust factor through the um, imaginations and through the um, conditioning through the imaginations to be able to then deal with his buttons on his uniform on a daily basis. I go with that as well because it's the idea that the phobia itself was learned and then the treatment unlearned that process so very much on the nurture side. This study is part of our learning approach and we need to always be linking back to our main assumptions 
there are two main ones here with the learning approach and they're quite short, which is lovely, that conditioning helps to explain changes in behavior. And secondly, that social learning helps to explain changes in behavior. Now we're just dealing with one boy, it's a case study. So we'll throw out the social learning one for now and we'll focus in on the conditioning. So there was the conditioning event, of course, in the initiation of the boy's phobia, as we just mentioned before with the nurture thing. Also the conditioning used in the treatment, firstly in vivo in life, being able to hold more buttons with the encouragement and positive feedback from his mother. So also adding in that layer of operant conditioning. So having that positive feedback and then also being able to deal with the disgust of buttons through the imagery, getting used to the different images he was prompted to imagine. Also with that encouragement, positive feedback from the mother. So really linking quite strongly to our assumption that conditioning helps to explain our changes in behavior, both for the boy becoming phobic and then also being cured of that. Okay, so moving on to our evaluation, we will run through our GRAVE acronym again. I've got both the G and R. Good news is, is that the G is quite short generalizability. We've got one boy, therefore, to a certain degree, it's mainly negative, mainly because we've got one, but also because it's a very rare phobia. If they had been looking at a boy who had arachnophobia, so a fear of spiders, then that would be more generalizable to more people because more people have arachnophobia. So it's rare, only one, very low in generalizability. Okay, moving on to our R for reliability. We've got a bit on both sides for this one. On the positive end, the authors did use the DSM-4 criteria to measure his specific phobia. They used it before the treatment, after the treatment, and at those six and 12 month follow-up sessions. So they used it consistently throughout to measure um, the change from being initially phobic to then being put into remission for that specific phobia. It is a standardized measurement tool that they use, the ADISCP, and with the structured interview that was specifically designed for children and parents, which was what was being used here. So with the boy and his mother. One other positive is that the feeling thermometer was used throughout the procedure. We'll get to a bit more about the reliability of this in just a moment. Another positive about this feeling thermometer was that it was created with the child. So the child understood exactly what each of the levels meant, and therefore he could be a bit more reliable and going, oh yeah, I know what a three feels like, and I know what a, um, a five feels like, and what an eight feels like to him. So he knew what the numbers meant, even if nobody else necessarily did. Yeah, another thing that's worth considering about the reliability of the feelings thermometer, though, is that the boy got used to using it. It was a new instrument during the first session. The boy might not have been used to how to use it. The reliability might not have been that good during the, the early parts of the procedure and might have got better afterwards. So that's worth considering about how participants in an experiment actually get used to the instruments that they are using and that the reliability at the beginning of the use of those instruments might not be as good. It's like using a, a ruler to measure things. If you're not used to using it, you might not be very reliable, making very reliable measurements. But once you're used to using it, your measurements are much more reliable. I think I would add, I even like the fact that they called it a feelings thermometer rather than a rating scale. So they're using language the child can relate to. He knows what feelings means. He knows what a thermometer is. He knows if your thermometer goes up. So using it in a way, so as well as helping create it, it's language he can recognize and identify with. So it's very familiar to him. I like that. Thinking of it 
on the more negative side though, it is a subjective feeling thermometer. It's not necessarily relevant. Um, if you gave it to another child, if you gave it to another adult, they may not necessarily rate things similarly. Though, again, we can re-emphasize that it was appropriate measure for the child because we wanted to compare earlier sessions to later sessions. And like Carl said, he was maybe getting still used to it in those earlier sessions. So there's a little bit of an issue there. But we're not trying to compare multiple individuals with the same rating scale. We're just comparing the one, so it's not quite as bad. The one other major negative that I've got here for this study is that we don't know exactly what happened during each session. We mentioned earlier, we don't even know how long there was between each sessions. Was it 20 minutes? Was it two days? Was it a week? Was it a month? We don't know. And so because it's unclear, then we are unable to be able to replicate it necessarily if we find another child with a button phobia to see if we can get similar results and cure somebody else in a similar way. So because we can't replicate it, therefore we can't test it for reliability. And that is a problem here. Yeah, I have to agree there, Joe, because I think that we talk about this study being a short study, but like it's very easy to read quickly and so on, but that's because there is a lack of information about the procedures and so on. So being able to replicate it is actually particularly difficult. So moving on to our A, so the application or the real life usefulness of this study. As Joe mentioned earlier, it's only one child, so it's very difficult to generalise the findings. But actually what we can think about in terms of real life application is we can look at the principles that underline the diagnosis and the treatment here and perhaps transfer those to the diagnosis and treatment of other phobias. So, for example, if we look at these results at face value, and we will evaluate more looking at the validity of the results, but if we take on face value, their treatment was successful. So treating both the fear and the disgust mechanisms of the phobia did seem to cure the phobia, not just immediately, but also in the more long term with the six and 12 month follow up. We saw that the results they found were maintained. So this suggests, and in fact, the researchers mentioned this, that clinicians, so people treating these phobias, should really think about and include the role of disgust in their treatment. Now, whether that's a button phobia, whether that's a phobia of, I don't know, teddy bears or more common phobias like heights or the dentist, there's quite a lot of applications of if we take this treatment as an effective one, it can be used within other psychological treatments for other phobias. Okay, we're partway through our evaluation using the G-R-A-V-E, grave mnemonic. So that was the application, the A part. And now we're talking about the V part, which is the validity. First of all, this was a case study, rich data. There's lots of data involved here that was gathered. Not all of it was reported on, but there was a lot there. And also there were two people involved in reporting this, both the boy and his mother. So we can think about there being two sources of data here, which helps increase the validity of the data that's gathered. We have two types of data that were gathered as well. We have quantitative data, which were like the stuff from the feelings thermometer and actually the measurement of the number of buttons that were handled. And we also have the qualitative, the life history data. And in particularly in that case, that had certain validity because you had both the boy and the mother. But you could question the validity of that as well. Was it really valid? the qualitative data that was gathered. We also talked a little bit before about demand characteristics and uh, what we call social desirability. 
we say that the boy was getting better and we're assigning it to the therapy, but it may be that the boy actually improved because of a couple of different things. First of all, social desirability. Maybe the boy felt some pressure, some demand characteristics and felt like he had to appear to be getting better. So it might be that that caused the improvements in the boy's phobia rather than the actual therapy. And the other thing, which is quite a common thing to look at in longitudinal studies, okay? This was actually also a longitudinal study, a piece of longitudinal research, because they had that follow-up over six and 12 months as well. And that's a thing called maturity. So as a participant goes through a study, they actually change because of other factors. And particularly when you're using children, we talked about the use of children in psychological research, children go through much more rapid maturation during their childhood than adults do in a study. So there might have been some lack of validity there. We might not have been measuring the improvement due to the therapy. We might have been measuring the improvement due to the increased aging of the child. Now, there's one other bit that I wanted to mention here, which I actually find kind of a little bit funny, and that's this discussion about the buttons emitting an odour. I'm pretty sure that the child didn't say the buttons emit an odour, wouldn't have used that vocabulary. And we all know that children, imagine children in the playground turning to their friend that they don't like and saying, oh, you smell, or those things stink, or that football team stinks, or so on, okay? Though that doesn't mean that they actually emit an odour. So the reporting of the smell might, and the interpretation of that might not have been a particularly valid piece of data. But I mean, it, it certainly might have been an indication of an evaluation of the buttons, but not necessarily a feeling of disgust about the buttons. Quite a different slant that I've not seen mentioned anywhere else. There's one other thing to add in terms of a positive on the validity, just to like change track again, ecological validity. This was done in a real life therapist's office. These people came to this office asking for help. And then as a result of that, the study was then written. And so this is a place where people would go naturally to deal with their specific phobias. So that makes the um, ecological validity quite high. So this is where you'd normally go for that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Joe, because I think sometimes we think about a laboratory setting or an office setting where they're measuring stuff as not being ecologically valid. But if that's not where you normally treat or assess someone, then it does have high ecological validity. Can I just go back to something you were talking about with the social desirability demand characteristics? Like, I think it's actually quite complex in this study because we've got the two aspects. We're used to thinking about it in terms of the experimenter, or in this case, the people conducting the study, the child may be seeking to please those understanding the expectations. But also the boy's mother was involved. And one of the treatments involved receiving praise from the mother. So the boy's almost learning that if he wants to get the nice things from his mum. But additionally, because we don't know the gaps between the sessions, what was the mother saying to the child in between? You know, was the mother praising and encouraging him for the excellent progress? Or perhaps even it became a nuisance to take him to this therapy session. And will you please get over this stupid phobia? 
you know, we don't actually know how supportive or sympathetic the mother was in this situation. So the boy may be responding to the demands of the study and the expectations of behaviour and the treatments. He may be responding to the behaviour of the mother because, I mean, he's a young child and young children generally want the approval of their parents. And that brings us to our final letter, the E for ethics. There's a lot of good positives with this one. Firstly, deception. There was none of it. Everybody knew what they were coming into the therapist's office for. They were trying to help cure this boy of his fear of buttons. And so they knew what they were getting in for. They knew they would have been laid out for them that the, uh, through the behavioral exposures, we will be asking you ultimately over time to be handling more and the smaller buttons that were more distressful. And so that is part of that. We also know through the emphasis that there was a post-treatment and a six and 12 month follow-ups that through that process, there would have been a bit of debriefing in terms of like what happened kind of there. And then also to see that, yes, the um, treatment had been successful. In that case, we are presuming that the boy understood the language that was communicated as well. So again, when we're talking about the ethics of using children in psychological research, we have to be concerned a little bit with how the explanation is being done about how the research will go on. However, to counter that, you can say, well, the boy's mother was there to take responsibility and sign off for that. So, you know, there's this thing that we say about the parent being involved and the parent that does have more understanding than the child. And we expect has the concern for the well-being of the child as well can actually make that judgment about whether to continue or be involved in the research too. That links really nicely to the informed consent that the authors report that they got it both from the mum and the child. And it wasn't just the start of it, it was for the diagnosis, so the actual initial interviews process to determine whether or not he had a specific phobia of buttons, then also for the treatment with um, the two treatment types, and then also for the final write-up. So they kept going back to um, the family saying, hey, can we, you know, are you okay with us doing the diagnosis? This is what it's going to um, involve. And are you okay with us doing the treatment? This is what it's going to involve. It's going to be hard. You're not going to like it. But ultimately, we're hoping that you will get better. And then also for the final write-up, hey, this was really cool. We've never seen anything like this before. Can we please write about you? Though, bearing in mind privacy, which we do definitely have, the anonymity of the child was maintained and the mother, all we know, nine years old, Hispanic American and turned up in Florida. Could have come from anywhere in the United States if they knew that this particular research center was really good for phobias. I would imagine they were probably from somewhere in the area of Miami, Florida, but we don't know that for certain. So they could have flown in from elsewhere. And then the sessions, I guess, may well have been shorter in between. So that's all good. Another thing to consider there in terms of privacy is the fact that because the phobia was so unusual, it might be easier to identify the boy and the mother from this research. So you've also got to balance that in there as well. Also, I think a number of schools, particularly like elementary schools, as they call them in America, wouldn't be wearing a lot of uniforms. So the fact that he was mm -hmm. in a elementary school from, say, like, between the ages of five and nine that he was having to wear buttons that may narrow the pool again so we got to be a bit careful about that so maybe if I wanted to I might be able to hunt him down but I don't know how good my googling is I think to be honest although everything you're saying is correct it could be easier I think if you 
knew this child, I think this phobia was so extreme, it would probably be something that you knew about anyway. So if you knew the child, you know, if you're getting changed for PE at school, it's going to be fairly obvious you don't like buttons. So it's not, although they've done their best to maintain anonymity, there's nothing in the study that would be psychologically or damaging to the parent or the child if it was identified, because I think it's not something that's embarrassing or shameful or highly personal. It's just a bit of an unusual phobia. And I think most people have a fear or phobia of something. So even if that information did get out or if it was able to be identified, it wouldn't necessarily be hugely damaging. So although it doesn't necessarily meet the full idea of anonymity, I think we can be flexible with that. And it's not necessarily 100% awful. Yeah. I think the protection part of the ethical issue of protection here is something that we should refer. We've talked to Eric before about, you know, the child going through distress, being exposed to the phobia. Always when you're considering ethics, I think researchers always think about what their overall aim is. Again, the overall aim here was to actually cure the boy of his phobia. So going through that distressful procedure was necessary to overcome the phobia in the longer term but you've always got to make that balance I think when you look at the protection part of of ethics. I would also say that some of the difficulty with protection from harm is we don't actually know how the boy would protect from harm so were there breaks was he able to say can we stop this treatment you know if he was getting too distressed so the lack of detail makes it hard to draw those conclusions about the psychological harm aspect of this as well. Because the whole point of with physical and psychological harm is that at the end of this research, you should be able to bring them back to their original state. But when it comes to dealing with phobias, it's like, well, his original state would be the pre-phobic state. So when he wasn't scared of buttons, so that would be point zero. But then over time, as he became phobic and as it got worse, his like distress would have gone up. And then to have this slight little short peak of just like however long the therapy sessions was to be even more distressed to then bring it closer back to that original zero state, even if he wasn't necessarily at zero, even ones or twos, like pretty close to that original state. It's a whole lot better than he was in his actual phobic state. So yeah, is it horrid at the time? Yes. But is it good for the long term? Ultimately, I think, yes. Yeah, and I think that's also supported by the fact that they did the six to the 12-month follow-up as well. So there was a tremendous amount of care taken in the treatment of both the boy and his mother by actually having those follow-ups to ensure that no long-term psychological damage had come from the research for both the mother and the child. We've also got to remember here, that a parent, whether it's a mother or a father or anyone that's a carer of a child, seeing their child go through a traumatic experience is also traumatic because of the amount of empathy you have for your own child too. So I think, you know, we talk about the protection of one of the participants, but in a way there were actually two participants here. There was also the parent of the child as well. So that is our study on Savadra and Silverman's button phobia with the button boy. We hope that you enjoyed listening along with us and learning all about this study. Hopefully we haven't conditioned you into any form of phobia of psychology or buttons or reading or listening to us. Goodness knows. So we hope that you enjoyed listening along with us. 
Don't forget to follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash psychogcaie. And you can also send us emails at psychogcaie at gmail.com. So you can post comments, tell us any questions, any concerns you've got for the studies that we've done up to the present and also for the last five studies that we've got to go as well as we round out all 12 studies. So do get in contact with us. We'd love to hear your feedback and see how you're enjoying this time listening with all of us here. So that is it from us. I'm Jo. I'm Leanne. And I would just add that if you do have any idea of how to pronounce the names of the psychologists in this study, we'd really appreciate it because the three of us all pronounce it in slightly different ways. But anyway, goodbye for now. Yeah, and I just hope that when you hear that we've released our next podcast, that you have an expectancy, that you are going to learn lots of things, and also that you have an evaluation of it as well as being a really good thing as well. So I, I hope that loops everything back around to the beginning and you can remember the difference between expectancy learning and evaluative learning. Thank you very much. I'm Carl, and I look forward to talking about research studies again next time. See ya. Bye.